y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week on the show, the host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, Linda Holmes, and Congressional Correspondent and NPR Politics Podcast host, Scott Detrow. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. As Betty said, we got two great guests here. Linda Holmes, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Scott Detrow, congressional correspondent at NPR, also the host of the NPR Politics Podcast, a crew that I know quite well. Thank you both for being here. Thank you, Sam. It was exciting to get the Aunt Betty intro. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So this song, which has some Vuvuzela vibes, it is actually one of the World Cup songs for this year. So there is an entire cottage industry of World Cup songs. There's always the official one commissioned by FIFA, but then countries commission their own World Cup songs. Companies commission their own World Cup songs. This one you're hearing right now, it was commissioned actually by the television network Telemundo. Oh, nice. It is a song called Positivo by Jay Balvin and Michael Brunn. It's kind of Vuvuzela-ish. Yeah. I didn't know they were so controversial until I tweeted that I liked Vuvuzelas and people literally sent me death threats. <laughs> they did. They <laughs> we did. should tell folks what those are. These were the things that showed up in the World Cup a few years back. Those big old... The horns. What Those plastic tubes that yeah. make that awful horn noise. Yeah. I can try and do one for you. Well, uh, well, do it. (laughs) But you need like 10,000 at once to really... Army of Vuvuzelas. So NPR Music had a roundup of all the other World Cup songs. There's one called Live It Up by Nicky Jam featuring Will Smith. But my favorite song for the World Cup this year is one by Jason Derulo. It's called Colors, and it's the official Coca-Cola World Cup song. Oh, gosh. Are you guys World Cup fans? So I feel I've been thinking a lot about this week. When I was younger... I hated the idea of a sports bandwagon fan more than anything. I thought that was like the biggest offense you could, could commit. Is That's to the be majority a of fans, Scott. I know, but as I get older, I'm like, you know what? I don't really follow soccer the rest of the other three years, but I get really into the World Cup. Last time around, I watched as many games as I could. I would plan my day around the games. I get into it. For, for a month, I, I read up everything I can about these players, and I feel like I'm okay with that. Okay. I care about women's soccer when that comes up. But uh, I don't really care about about men's soccer. And it's not because I completely respect people who do. It's not because I look down on soccer. Some of the things I like are not interesting to other people, to say the least. But uh, it's just not my thing. It's the the, when when somebody kicks the ball and it flies like a super long distance and you realize the whole thing's just going to reset. I get too frustrated. (laughs) I got to I got to look at my phone. It's not my sport. That's all. Anyway. Linda and Scott are here with me right now to look back on the week of news, culture, and everything else. We're each going to describe our week of news and how it felt in only three words. I'm going to make Scott go first. Okay. My three words are, see what happens, which is a a truncated version of the answer that President Trump gives 
over and over again when asked about things. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Because so many things happened this week that just kind of crystallized to me that that the world, that the United States, that our entire political system is really at the whims of President Trump and the fact that he makes impulsive decisions. And these are decisions that have massive consequences. At the beginning of this week, President Trump becomes the first president to sit down with the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, for this high-stakes diplomatic summit where uh, they're meeting to discuss the idea of North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons. Uh, the meeting ends with North Korea agreeing to something that it's basically agreed to over and over again and repeatedly broken that promise, saying, yeah, sure, we'll denuclearize. But in the process, Trump gives Kim Jong-un this massive global stage, legitimizes him as a world leader. And the President Trump flies back to America and basically says, problem solved. North Korea, no longer a nuclear threat. And there was some really interesting stuff going on there with the visual symbolism of that meeting. Mm -hmm. There was one moment where you pan across the room. The North Korean flags are raised as high as the American flags. Um, you see Trump salute a North Korean general. You see Trump shake a Kim Jong-un's hand, which is a thing that some foreign policy experts say don't do, don't do, don't do, because then Kim Jong-un can go back to his people and say, look, I'm on the same level as the president. Right. And and there are some upsides and there are a lot of downsides to a president who, who has no regard for convention whatsoever and, and makes decisions by the seat of his pants. The upside is maybe there is an opening that the last few presidents never got because they wanted to go through the typical process and they wanted to wait for North Korea to uh, to make some changes before they engage them. And the downside is, again, this agreement really isn't anything other than what we've had before. And if President Trump has decided now he wants to bring North Korea into the world, what does that mean? So, again, get back to we'll see what happens. Does the State Department have this massive uh, process and negotiations and verification and the United Nations weapons inspectors? Or do we all just say, all right, we're cool with North Korea now and move on? Yeah. So, Scott, what else has you saying? See what happens. It's issue after issue after issue, right? I mean, you had uh, in a primary in South Carolina, you had a congressman, Mark Sanford, former governor. You may remember him as the guy who hiked the Appalachian Trail but did not actually hike the Appalachian Trail. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. <laughs> um, he survived a lot of scandals in his career. He was elected to Congress, and uh, in Congress he's been a critic of President Trump, uh, voting along with President Trump a lot of, a lot of things, but being one of, but being one of the few Republicans who uh, who will give quotes criticizing the president, his style, the policies where he drifts away from typical Republican orthodoxy. So Sanford lost his primary this week because his opponent said this is not someone who supports the president enough. And Republican voters said, you're right, we're voting for this other person because you, you don't have the president's back. And the thing with Sanford is, like, this was a man, Mark Sanford, who survived what seemed like political death right. after he was caught traipsing to another continent to see his mistress and abandoning his post for days at a time. He survived that. But as soon as you say, maybe not Donald Trump, right. you're out. Yeah. Okay, Linda, what are your three words? 
So my three words this week are uh, invisible in theaters. And um, the first thing that I want to talk about is a study that came out last Monday from the Inclusion Initiative, which is a think tank out of USC Annenberg that works on topics of diversity and entertainment. And they worked, uh, they began with the collection of film reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, which is an aggregator of reviews Mm -hmm. that basically takes all the reviews and puts them together to come up with percentages. They found that 82% of all the reviews of the top uh, 100 films of 2017 were written by white people. Hmm. Um, 78% were written by men. So the numbers, when you put it all together, uh, they are low for men of color, but they're even lower for women of color. Um, There are a lot of caveats around these numbers, right? However... I think the underlying point that, you know, film criticism as much as film itself has some of the same um, imbalances that you see in other parts of entertainment is something that very few people would argue with. And it has started, you know, a conversation. And and this is a complex problem to solve, right? This yeah. The whole world of criticism is shrinking. Budgets hmm. to pay for it are shrinking. Most people are freelance. Hmm. So what we've been talking about this week is, you know, trying to figure out ways. How do you make those opportunities? How do you make sure people can get credentialed for film festivals? How do you make sure that they can get into advanced screenings, which are really a prerequisite for being able to do um, reviewing for most major publications. So people are really trying to get at it's not a Rotten Tomatoes problem. It's a it's a they're that's just the measure. It's a film criticism problem. And I think that everybody is kind of trying to figure out how do you how do you make that work? What's like the developing talent pool for for aspiring film critics? I mean, given that the industry is so closed and the bar is so high to get to that point. Like, where do you look for the film critics of tomorrow? This is a real problem because the easiest answer to that is that you would look for them, you know, maybe in the same way that people used to look for writers who had blogs or something like that. Ah. But it can be really difficult for people to get um, attention just because there's so much noise mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and because there's so much volume. You really have to concentrate on locating that talent. What else made you use those three words this week? So the other reason I used those three words, um, this involved uh, two people. Neil Patrick Harris, who is formerly of How I Met Your Mother and Once Upon a Time, Doogie Howser. Uh, <laughs> and he, I'll take Doogie over How I Met Your Mother any day. Yeah, and he had hosted uh, the Tony Awards uh, four times in the past, most recently in 2013. He was a wonderful host. I don't think anybody would uh, deny that. The other person is Rachel Bloom, who is the co-creator and the star of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which has essentially brought musical theater to television. Her show's on The CW. It's a great show. It, it is a great show. Um, and she was at the Tonys uh, on the night of June 10th. She was doing backstage commentary at the Tonys, uh, just kind of doing little interstitial bits for CBS during the telecast. And he tweeted to his 27 million followers. So he wasn't there. He wasn't there. Um, and he tweeted, who is the woman in the top hat backstage? at the Tony Awards, Gideon, Gideon, that's his son, Gideon remarked that she says like and oh my God a lot. I'm confused. Ooh. Oh, you stepped in it, NPH. Now, when I saw this, I assumed it was a bit. I assumed he was joking because uh-huh. it was so improbable to me that he wouldn't know who she was because she is so involved in kind of the world of musical theater. Yeah. And then it got worse because oh, no. she, when she responded, she said, oh, um, I'm a big fan. Actually, we've met a few times. My <laughs> husband wrote for How I Met Your Mother for five years. Ooh. Um, 
So it was not a bit. Uh, she yeah. went and gave an interview to GQ, which I really recommend. Uh, she unloaded a little bit about how this was not a joke. It was sort of hard and painful for her. And one of the things she talked about was if you have 27 million people following you on Twitter, you know, it's easy to just have y- your kind of unformed thoughts, I think mm-hmm. are what she called them, sort of just flow out into the world. And you start to think that they have more value than they do because you're surrounded by yes men. And they all like it and retweet it. And they no like it and retweet say. it. And she basically said, I hope that if I'm ever famous enough to have 27 million people that I don't become the kind of person who doesn't have that filter because I'm surrounded by yes men. And then ooh, he did ooh, ooh. he did ultimately apologize. She accepted it gracefully. I think there's allegedly peace uh, between these people. But it was difficult to watch. And I think that it was an interesting and instructive moment about fame. I think she's totally right that that everybody needs people in their life to, to pop their self-important bubbles and say, like, you know, your tweets are not that interesting. Why don't you think them through? Yeah. So, you guys, I have three words to describe my week. What are they? They are, it is written. And I bring up those words because they're a little bit churchy. I would hear that phrase growing up in Pentecostal churches all the time. It is written. And I was thinking about church a lot this week because everyone on Capitol Hill seemed to be quoting scripture. Yeah. Uh, I am talking about this ongoing debate across the country over the Trump administration's policy of separating families uh, while parents of kids who are coming here from other countries while those parents uh, have to go to court uh, over being charged for coming here illegally. So there have been these images uh, of children in detention centers away from their parents. Uh, There have been stories of children being taken from their parents, without the parents even knowing where the kids are going to go. And it's gotten a lot of people really worked up. Um, And Jeff Sessions, Donald Trump's attorney general, seemed to make this debate even louder when he quoted scripture to justify the separation policy. And of course, a lot of people shot back and said, actually, the scripture says it's about this. And then there was this ongoing debate. And then more religious involvement came after that. We heard from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. They came out against this policy. Uh, And then the Southern Baptist Convention, which is usually reliably Republican, They issued a resolution that passed uh, with high, high numbers, basically calling for immigration policy that didn't break up families. And they also said, quote, we declare that any form of nativism, mistreatment or exploitation is inconsistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it was this week where religious types were arguing over what is written in the Bible. And then, you know, what is so interesting is to see... The GOP kind of tied themselves in knots over how to deal with this. Like if you have the Southern Baptists saying this is wrong, as a Republican leader, you have a problem. So Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, um, he is introducing at least two bills next week in the House that deal with immigration. One meant to appeal to more conservative voices in the GOP, the other to more moderate voices. And that bill for the moderates, it would actually end the Trump practice of family separation. But it is not clear at all if anything, either bill, will pass. And and here's the reason why no immigration bill has moved forward at all uh, since since this debate began in September, even though every single leader of of every single caucus on, on Capitol Hill says they want to do something and they all 
basically agree on the general things they want to do. It's that the Republican Party has gotten more and more hardline on immigration, especially under President Trump. And he wants this impossible collection of policies to be in any sort of bill that you can't get anyone to agree on because he wants to create some sort of path to legalization or permanence. Hardliners won't vote for that. And he also wants to make big, drastic changes to the legal immigration system, which no Democrat and a lot of moderates won't vote for. So you yeah. have this this process. Uh, the only time this actually came up for a vote was in the Senate a few months ago, and you had 38 or 39 senators voting for it. That's how popular it was. Yeah. Another thing that had me saying it is written this week was the discovery that James Comey was writing official <laughs> business in his personal email account. Mm-hmm. James Comey, we know, former FBI director uh, who was probably still hated by about half the country for his investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails during the campaign of 2016. Come to find out, like maybe at the same time, he was doing the same thing he was investigating Hillary Clinton over. Hillary Clinton had thoughts on that on Twitter. Oh, uh, she, 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 she retweeted uh, somebody pointing this out in the report with just, but my emails. Whew. Yeah. So, Scott, how do we find out about this new Comey news this week? Because the inspector general of the Department of Justice just released an enormous report on everything the FBI did, often with disastrous results throughout the 2016 election. This is a big 500-page report looking at the Comey press conference, looking at Loretta Lynch meeting with Bill Clinton on the tarmac, looking at that letter, looking at all these decisions made by federal prosecutors, by the FBI in 2016, that we're still living with every single day today. A couple years later. Have you read it? Uh, I have asked Carrie Johnson what is in it, and that's good <laughs> enough. <laughs> okay. Carrie Johnson, our justice correspondent. You guys, time for a break. Coming up, we're going to check in on Amazon and whether that company will ever be able to change the way that you buy fruit. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Tito's Handmade Vodka, America's original craft vodka. Tito's is distilled from corn and naturally gluten-free, spreading the love one drop at a time. For recipes, videos, and more, visit them at titosvodka.com. Crafted to be savored responsibly. 80-proof Tito's Handmade Vodka, 5th Generation Inc., distilled and bottled in Austin, Texas. There's a new way to hear Morning Edition, All Things Considered, and all your favorite programs. Just ask your smart device to play NPR. Listen to your local station anytime, like this. Hey, smart device, play NPR. We are back. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests today, Linda Holmes, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Hi, Linda. Hi, Sam. Also, Scott Detrow, congressional correspondent for NPR and host of the NPR Politics Podcast. Hi, Scott. Hey, Sam. All right, guys. Before the next segment, I have a quick question for you both. Did you see this week that cartoon in The New Yorker about (laughs) us, about NPR? I did. How do we feel about that? Well, uh, remind me what exactly it said. I will tell you exactly what it said. So it was a cartoon image of an old school radio with a little speech bubble outside of it that said, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Today on All Things Considered, a tree 
bowling, the space-time continuum, large hats, David Duchovny, undercooked lentils, <laughs> parachutes, and the color maroon. Yeah, I mean, guilty, right? I mean, so guilty. It I'm not us. sure. I'm not sure exactly what's supposed to be. I mean, I know it's supposed to be mocking, but <laughs> why? I, I love I love the fact that it's like David Duchovny and undercooked lentils. Exactly. It's what we it do. Is, it is called All Things Considered. So our colleague, Camilla Domonoski, who uh, works on NPR's breaking news team, she did some Googling. She did the research. She found the receipts. NPR, in fact, has covered all those stories mentioned in that cartoon, <laughs> yeah. just not on the same show. No, of course we have. So my question for you both, given that is, um, what is the most public radio story that you've ever done? Well, I didn't do it, but my vote for the most public radio headline, because I work in digital, so I work mostly on the website, and the most public radio headline ever was cilantro, the controversial herb. (laughs) (laughs) Mine was uh, only a couple months ago, and I stand by it, and it's one of my favorite stories I've ever done. No, actually, two different things. Okay, okay. Hmm. Hmm. It's a tie, I would say. It was a tie between a feature I did on how the Washington Nationals cut their outfield grass. Oh, yeah, that's one. (laughs) And also in contention was a quick profile of an annual contest where people compete to see how long they can go without finding out who won the Super Bowl. Oh, yeah, no, that's very public radio. Yeah, I I like it. I like it. I love it. And the winner, I think, actually ended up making it to like mid-April. So good for that person. (laughs) All right, guys, now it's time for a segment that we call Long Distance where we call up somebody from around the country or the world, and we talk about what's going on where they live. We all know that last week the deaths of Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade had us all talking about suicide and how to help people that we know and love that may be dealing with suicidal thoughts or deep depression. But as these national conversations go, we stopped talking about it after a few days, and we moved on to the next story. But for a lot of people, suicide is a reality that never, ever really goes away especially for mental health professionals. So we called up Annie Thode. She's a psychiatrist and a licensed clinical social worker in New York. And she works with folks every day who are suicidal. So we wanted to ask her um, how we should be talking about this issue and how we can help. Annie, you there? I'm here, Sam. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Great. Thank you. Thanks for calling. Of course. You're on the line with two friends of mine, Linda and Scott. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hey. Hi, guys. So you're in New York? Where in New York? I'm in Queens. Very cool. And so what do you do in Queens? I am a clinical social worker. I work on an inpatient psychiatric unit, and we deal with patients that come in with chronic mental health issues. And I would say 50% of my caseload consists of people that have had suicidal, that are having suicidal thoughts or have tried to commit suicide. Wow. So as someone who deals with people that are dealing with suicidal thoughts every day, what is it like for you when you see a moment like last week when suicide becomes the national conversation? Well, the first thing that I always think is how long can we keep this conversation going? Hmm. Um, Because I worry that we only talk about it for a couple minutes and then it goes away. So that's always my first thought. And my second thought is, What I wish that we talked about was that depression is, to me, this is what I say to my patients, like an emotional, the emotional mental health version of cancer. Mm. And it's with you forever. Even when you, even when people stabilize it and they're either taking meds or they're in outpatient therapy, they're managing that 
depression and that anxiety and, and other and other mental illnesses, but particularly depression, forever. Hmm. And that suicide attempt is this moment in time, their lowest point, mm-hmm. but they, they're still dealing with it on a regular, even on a good day. It's always there. And, and that's something that I think that people don't understand. One thing that, that I thought was missing a little bit in, in the conversation last week is that the role that, that friends can play and, and, and just uh, your community can play. And I'm wondering, what's the advice that you give to somebody who has a friend who, who they know uh, struggles with depression, might have suicidal thoughts? Because to me, it seems like you want to ask about it and try and be supportive, but it's also such a defensive topic and it's something mm-hmm. that can immediately get people back on their guards and, and shut down. So... What do you recommend to people who want to check in on friends they're worried about but, but don't want to make anything worse? What I tend to say is that letting people know that you're there hmm. and just kind of saying, look, I want you to know that I'm here and I understand that this is really hard. You can come to me at any time and talk about it or you can just come to me and I can just be there. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. Letting okay. them know that you're there. Yeah. Although I would add, too, that um, one of the conversations I saw going by on Twitter was about how helpful it can be when sometimes when people just try to do some of the logistics for uh. you. Uh, yes. Um, yes. I when I found my psychiatrist, um, I had a friend who gave me the number of her psychiatrist. Huh. She said, I, I love her. I think you would love her. I will call for you if you want. Um, I wound up actually making the phone call, but she put the number in front of me and mm-hmm. she said mm-hmm. to me, she said to me, I don't want to be a nag, but I'm going to tell you that I'm going to keep asking you about this until you tell me that you've called someone. Mm. And oh, it, I love that. it was exactly the right amount of logistical support. And I think you just have to, my experience was you just have to f- find it. It has to be specific to the person and the relationship that you have with them. But if you have the right relationship with them, sometimes just saying, like, I wrote down a number. You don't have to call it today, but I'm going to ask you tomorrow and I'm going to keep asking you until you call it or until you tell me that you're doing something else. Um, I love that. It just just takes a a delicate touch, I think, or it did with me. Mm No, I would I would agree with that. And I think that, like, that's also the one thing that we need more of is people – a lot of people don't have those wonderful friends of people just kind of saying like, you know, here, here's somebody that can help you in, in the community do this for you. I mean, we really need more of that. Yeah. My question a lot of the time is, especially when we were having these quote unquote national conversations about a topic, I always wonder, mm-hmm. well, it's a national conversation, but for who? And I know that mm-hmm. for a lot of people, depending on where you are and the level of privilege you have, suicide is just not a conversation that you have yeah i mean there was a suicide attempt in my close family a few years ago and Mm -hmm. i'll never forget Mm -hmm. the suicide attempt happened to the family member everyone knew it happened some of us were at the hospital after the Mm -hmm. um, like attempt and then we all just prayed and went home and never spoke about it again yeah that person's still living and, and and is doing better but like it's probably not the best way to handle that right and what it does to that person, because there's a tremendous, tremendous amount of shame attached to it. If that's the way that it's handled, and even if it's not handled that way, when somebody wakes up and they see all these family members around them who are like, what would have happened to us if you had died? There's this feeling of, oh, my God, like, I, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so ashamed. And families don't mean for it to be that way. They're trying to convey love most of the time. Yeah. 
Like, there's a lot of shame attached there. Yeah. Uh, so there are probably a lot of listeners right now that are trying to help someone close to them who is dealing with depression and other issues, and it wears the person trying to help down as well. Um, mm-hmm. Can you offer some advice to people helping loved ones deal with this stuff? Uh, you deal with it every day. How do you cope? How do you take time for self-care? Um, well, for me personally, I mean, my self-care is always reading or just kind of unwinding the Netflix thing. That's just me as a therapist. I think for people that are helping loved ones, I think that, and, and it is, and it is very tiring and it can feel very exhausting because you can't take that person's pain away. And I think that that's really where you want to kind of tell people, no, you can't take that person's pain away. But just being, again, like I said, just being there and being present, Hmm. that's helpful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, What are you going to do for yourself this weekend for fun? I will be at the beach. Which beach? Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore, Cape May. I love it. I love it. Jersey Shore gets a bad (laughs) rap, but it's actually pretty nice. It's great. It's great. (laughs) Hey, well, I thank you uh, so much for your time uh, and for the work that you do every day. I think our audience is going to uh, get some helpful tips on dealing with a tough issue from this conversation. Good. Thank you so much for calling me. Yeah, thank you. Have a good weekend. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, if you want to talk to us about how you're dealing with the news, any news, wherever you are, just drop me a line and tell me why we should give you a call. I'm at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. You know, it's really weird for me as someone who's in the press, Scott and Linda, to see the way that the media covers things like suicide. Yeah. Because every time I'm like, I'm not sure we're doing this right. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the reasons why my primary approach is to talk as openly as I can about the fact that I've had a ton of therapy. Um, I have a psychiatrist. I take medication. It's for anxiety and depression. It doesn't embarrass me. It yeah. doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, it doesn't bother me for people to know about it. There's a podcast called The Hilarious World of Depression that's hosted by John Moe mm-hmm. um, that is about people talking about their experiences with anxiety and depression. And if you want to hear more of me talking about mine and a lot of other people talking about theirs... You can look for that podcast. I think, you know, for me, I've settled on that as the best thing that I can do is just tell people like it It tr- truly I am so used to talking about it that I don't even think twice about it. Yeah. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests today, Linda Holmes, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, and Scott Detrow, congressional correspondent at NPR, also the host of the NPR Politics Podcast. So, uh, you guys, this week is a very special anniversary. Do you want to guess? Uh, Oh, wait. um, It's a one-year anniversary. Oh, a one-year anniversary. Hmm. It was supposed to change the way that we all buy groceries. Oh, Oh, Amazon and Whole Foods? Yes, Amazon and Whole Foods. This is the one-year anniversary of Amazon, the global behemoth, announcing their purchase or their plans to purchase Whole Foods. They paid close to $14 billion, their biggest acquisition ever, and everyone thought it was going to be earth-shattering. In fact, after the deal was announced last year, stocks for all the other big grocery store chains, like, crashed. And so we were at this anniversary now, and I'm looking back over this last year, and I'm kind of like, well, what's actually changed? 
I use Amazon. I use Whole Foods. My experience at either place really isn't that different than it was from a year ago. So I called up Sarah Halzak. She's a friend of the show. She is a Bloomberg opinion writer, and she covers Amazon. And she told me, if you know where to look, the Amazon Whole Foods deal actually means a lot. As you've rightly pointed out, Whole Foods basically still feels like Whole Foods, right, when you walk in there? So I can give you a rundown of some of the things they have done, but they're all kind of nibbling around the edges. So you may have noticed that there are kiosks now in Whole Foods stores that sell Amazon gadgets. Yes. And in certain stores, you see those Amazon lockers for picking up Amazon purchases that you made online. Mm -hmm. And then... The biggest thing is probably that they have tried to take some action to sort of chip away at that whole paycheck reputation, right? This is something that's dogged Whole Foods forever. Everybody thinks it's expensive, and Amazon wants to change that. So they have lowered prices on certain key items, and they have given a discount to Prime members, an additional 10% off sale items. Yeah. It's funny. I've been seeing the, like, Prime signs in Whole Foods, and I've been reluctant to let Whole Foods know that I'm an Amazon Prime customer. Customer because I'm like, well, Amazon already knows too much about me. I'm not going to tell them that. <laughs> yeah, that's understandable. We're all in this moment of like wanting to be very aware of what's going on with our data, right, and our, yeah. protecting our privacy. Um, yeah. But basically, to understand the impact of this deal, look everywhere else but Amazon. <laughs> so uh, some examples of this, uh, Walmart and Kroger have really had the fire lit underneath them to expand their digital grocery offerings. So Walmart is now on pace to, with its delivery services, cover about 40% of U.S. households by the end of this year. I just got to stop you. I didn't know that Walmart delivers groceries now. (laughs) Well, that's clearly a problem that they're going to have to surmount. (laughs) That's a marketing issue for them, for sure. But actually, so far, a key cornerstone of their effort and also of the efforts by Kroger to fight back against Amazon is click and collect, which is when you buy the groceries online and you pull your car into the parking lot and someone puts them in your trunk. Oh. Yeah. And so I like that. Yeah. I was going to say, for those of us who live in an urban area, you might say, well, gee whiz, I don't even have a car. This is not useful to me. Um, But for folks who live in suburbs and exurbs, this is proving really popular. And it's one place where Walmart and Kroger still have a real advantage over Amazon. And, you know, it's so interesting because I think the grocery industry has really been allowed to sort of have this e-commerce slumber in a way for the last 20 years. So you think about categories like books, DVDs, media, Uh, those purchases, the majority of them are online at this point. And you look at Mm -hmm. things like clothes, toys, a significant share of that spending is online. Grocery shopping, however, we are all still doing like it's 1993. Well, because I want to touch the apple. I want to go in the store. I want to look at that avocado (laughs) and make sure. Yeah. how, How does a grocery get over that? So you have absolutely hit on one of their key pain points, which is when customers are surveyed about why they don't grocery shop online, this is exactly why. They want to squeeze that peach and feel the ripeness. They want to get bananas that are the level of yellow or green that they personally like. So Walmart, uh, with its click and collect program, employs this network of these employees that they call personal shoppers to Hmm. do the picking for you. And Mm -hmm. the idea is that over time, this person gets to know your preferences. So they know that, uh, you know, Jane Doe really likes her bananas (laughs) on the green side. (laughs) I know. That is hilarious to me. Yeah. And like, it's hard to imagine if this service gets as big and popular as they want it to be, can they really afford to keep that kind of personal touch? But it's features like that that they're trying to use to sort of get us over this hump of feeling comfortable of purchasing our groceries online. Yeah. So then given all of these changes, 
perhaps the biggest symbol being the Whole Foods deal. But like five years from now, how does, quote unquote, big grocery want someone like me to be shopping? Does it involve a smartphone, an app? Does it involve delivery? Does it involve a drone? Like what is their (laughs) vision for my shopping five years from now? I think it's a real hybrid of digital and physical, and I think it depends on the occasion, right? So grocery is always going to be one of these things that, unlike a sweater or a couch, sometimes yeah. when you need it, you need it. Yeah. And, <laughs> right? And so uh, the idea of waiting for a delivery just might not be feasible. It just might be more practical to go to a store. But when you're just doing a replenishment purchase, like buying the same darn granola bars that you eat for breakfast every morning mm-hmm. or buying your K-cup coffee pods, whatever it may be, I think there is an expectation that many of those are going to have moved on So I kind of want to go big picture on Amazon for a second, Uh, moving past grocery. What does the way this Amazon Whole Foods deal played out over the last year say about Amazon's business strategy writ large? I think we have just seen over the last year with this deal and many other things Amazon has done that they're going to continue to surprise us and they're going to continue to become a more sprawling, diverse empire. You think about this business that started as a retailer selling books and now it also has this content studio, right, that's making TV and movie yeah. programming. Yeah. Uh, you have hardware like the Echo, which contains, you know, the the Alexa voice assistant. You just see by how Amazon has transformed over this last year that it really is this company that is continuing to have its tentacles deeper and deeper into different parts of our lives and different parts yeah. of our businesses. And I, I expect that will continue going forward. Yeah. Last question, not tough at all. Are you mean to Alexa or nice to Alexa? I find myself being mean to her a lot, and I feel bad about it. Oh, you know, I don't like to be mean to her, but actually, <laughs> here's my here's my favorite Alexa story. Uh-huh. So my uh, aunt took her grandchild to a baseball game, a Major League Baseball game recently, mm-hmm. and when the music got too loud in the stadium, this toddler child started saying, Alexa, lower. Alexa, lower. <laughs> And I love it. I know. It's funny, but it also does raise these interesting questions, right, culturally about kids who grow up uh, used oh, to yeah. interacting with these devices. It's all they know. Uh, yeah, it's all they know. And it just was definitely a moment that crystallized for me how much that technology is sort of wheedling its way into our everyday lives. Oh, yeah. The future is here and we cannot escape it. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. All right, listeners, time for a break. When we come back, who said that? Support for this podcast and the following message come from Showtime and the acclaimed series, The Affair. This summer, the journey continues in this intimate relationship drama. A fresh start should mean a new beginning, but the past forces everyone to crash back together. Starring Dominic West, Ruth Wilson, Maura Tierney, and Joshua Jackson. Don't miss the new season of The Affair, premiering June 17th, only on Showtime. To try a free month, Go to Showtime.com and enter code MINUTE. Offer is for first-time subscribers only and expires July 15th. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR, the show where we catch up on the week that was. 
I'm Sam Sanders here with two guests, Scott Detrow, congressional correspondent for NPR, also host of the NPR Politics Podcast, and Linda Holmes, who hosts NPR's Monkey C Blog and also hosts NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. You guys, it's time for my favorite game. Who said that? Yeah. Uh, the game is very simple. You know how it goes. I share a quote from the week. You guys have to guess who said that. I'm not a stickler. I'll give you lots of hints. You can even just get closer in the area with the keyword. It's fine. Uh, what are we a, playing for? Anything? Nothing. Okay. The winner gets nothing, per always. Glory. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Ready for the first quote? Let's do it. Facing an already harsher winter than usual for Delaware, this is an opportunity to get additional money to stretch our city's limited resources. Who said that? There's a story in the news involving a food company helping with, like, infrastructure. Y'all didn't see this? I have no idea. You guys. <laughs> it's off to a great start. Domino's Pizza's out here filling potholes. What? What? You didn't see this story? No. Yeah. No. So, so that quote was from Eric Norenberg. He's a city manager of Milford, Delaware. Uh, Milford, Delaware is one of four towns that are apparently getting help to fill potholes from Domino's Pizza. Okay. Domino's launched this PR campaign recently to help repair potholes in American towns. They're calling it Paving for Pizza. Mm. I assume it's ungenerous if I ask whether they're filling the potholes with pizza. I was thinking that. I'm glad <laughs> you was, said it. I, the joke I had written was, I always knew Domino's Pizza dough was tough. <laughs> I didn't know it could patch potholes. <laughs> so they send a truck to yeah. towns with potholes. You can nominate your town. Uh, they've apparently already filled potholes in Texas, Delaware, Georgia, and California. Is it going to have like a little uh, thing over it forever that says this hole patched by Domino's Pizza? <laughs> now this gives them the permanence that Pizza Hut has when I love driving around and seeing like a bank or a store that clearly used to be a Pizza Hut. Yeah. Like it's so clearly a Pizza Hut. Domino's doesn't have that yeah. iconic look. So now the potholes maybe. All right. Next quote. You ready? Mm-hmm. The other day, someone was saying, like, oh, my God, you should keep your mouth shut because now you're never going to be invited to parties. Who said that? Wait, was it me? No. <laughs> uh, keep your mouth shut because you're never going to be invited to parties. Uh, she also said, I got invited to way more parties after that. Who was in the news for a weird incident at a party earlier this year? Was this somebody, was this the I Bit Beyonce? Yes. Yes. Give it to Linda. So that was Tiffany Haddish. Yes. So Tiffany Haddish uh, was in the news again this week because she finally confirmed to an enterprising reporter at The Hollywood Reporter that it was, in fact, the actress Sanaa Lathan of Love and Basketball fame who bit Beyonce at a party earlier this year. That is a weird story. It's such a weird story. So this all came out a few months ago because in some interview, Tiffany Haddish is telling the story about how somebody came up to Beyonce at a party she was at, bit Beyonce, and she was talking about how she was very worried about after that story came out, not being able to go to other parties because folks would be like, oh, right. Tiffany Haddish will spill all the beans. Exactly. She says, in fact, I get invited to all the parties Yeah, I'm now. not sure that's why she's suddenly getting invited to all the parties, <laughs> but, I, but I hear her. Uh, is it tied? Who got the first one? Nobody. Nobody got the first one. Oh, I'm okay. losing. So, Linda, you're up. I'm up one to nothing. Uh, yeah, Scott, you could tie this thing right now if we you want to. We are drifting farther and farther from my knowledge wheelhouse as this goes on, so I'm not Closer I'm not to confident. mine. Closer to mine. Let's keep going. All right, last quote. Not only does she text, but she loves emojis, especially the party hat one. Who said that? Uh, is it somebody talking about Queen Elizabeth? Somebody talking about... Hillary Clinton. 
Uh, talking about a woman, an older woman who is a widow to someone America loves. Uh, a new documentary out about him right oh, now. Oh, Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Yes. yes. Good job, Scott. <sighs> All right. So that was the world-renowned cellist Yo-Yo Ma. Oh, sure. Talking about the 90-year-old widow of Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers. Her name is Joanne Rogers. So there's this new documentary all about Mr. Rogers oh, called Won't You Be My yeah, Neighbor. You can tell I haven't seen it yet. And in this profile of Joanne Rogers, the widow of Mr. Rogers, uh, Yo-Yo Ma talks about being text buddies with her. Aww. And that is just the cutest thing. That is the cutest thing. I really want to see that documentary. I think I'm even more excited about the movie where Tom Hanks is playing Mr. Rogers. Whoa, 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 out. wait. That's happening? That's happening. How short or tall is Mr. Rogers? He's. It, it, that's not the scale to measure on. It's lovableness. Mm-hmm. And is Tom, Tom Cruise lovable? lovable? Tom, Tom Hanks. Hanks. Oh. oh, God. Tom Cruise's Mr. Oh. Rogers would be disastrous. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Sam Sanders was just envisioning Tom Cruise <laughs> that's why I was so playing disturbed. Mr. Rogers. Scott and I are both sitting here being like, this makes all the sense in the world. Sam is like, what? Is like, what is this? Sam is it? That's why he asks about being short or tall. Yes. Because I'm thinking, is Tom Hanks particularly short or tall? Now no, I want to see the Tom Cruise Mr. <laughs> Rogers movie. He's like, I do my own stunts. I put the sweater on myself. I took the shoes off. It was all me. Dun, 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 Would dun, you like dun. to be my neighbor? <laughs> okay. Uh, you know who won this game? Is it you? Oh, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers, got it. Because none of y'all did. Mm-hmm, it's true. <laughs> Thanks for playing. Um, come back again and try to play again sometime. Oh, I will. Then. I will. I yes. normally do better than this. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, you guys, that concludes Who Said That? All right, now it's time to end the show as we do every week. I ask our listeners to share with us the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag. Let's take a listen. Brent, hit the tape. Hi, Sam. This is Kate from Fishkill, New York, currently recording this in the Richard Rogers Theater in New York City during intermission of Hamilton. Oh. By uh-huh. far the best thing that has happened to me this week. Keep up the great work. Love your show. Hi, Sam. I'm Adam from Brentwood, Tennessee, and the best thing that happened to me this week was that I was elected to my student council. I have finally unpacked the last box in my first solo apartment. I finished my first 100-mile endurance race in the beautiful mountains of San Diego County this past weekend. I was recognized at an all-district meeting as a 30-year teacher. Wow, time sure flies when you are teaching tiny humans. Hey Sam, this is Birdie in Phoenix, Arizona. The best thing that happened to me this week was I was able to help a close friend pay for a Disneyland vacation for her husband and three kids. My mother never got to take my brother and I on a vacation, so I know how much this means to her, and it means a lot to me knowing that I could help someone have a memorable summer vacation. Hi Sam, this is Mariel from San Antonio, Texas, and I wanted to change things up a little bit this week and let you know that the best thing that happened to you this week is that my newborn daughter recognized your voice on the podcast (laughs) and smiled for the very first time. So congratulations, you have a new little fan here in San Antonio. Hi, Sam. My name is Iman, and I'm in Chicago, Illinois. The best thing that happened to me this week was having open-heart surgery. Everything went really, really well, and I'm now at home recovering with the help of my brother and best friend and facing a much healthier future. I listen to your show regularly and it was very comforting to hear a familiar voice while I was in the hospital. Thanks so much, Sam. Thanks. Have a great week. 
Bye. Bye. I'm Verklempt. Wow. Some really good ones in there, Sam. I needed that one this week. Yeah, me too. So much thanks to all the voices you heard there. Kate, Adam, Emma, Anthony, Angie, Birdie, to Mariel. Uh, Mariel, send us photos of that uh, newborn. I want to see. And thank you for making a new public radio listener so soon in their lives. And E-Man, I am glad to hear that you're recovering okay and really glad that you made it through surgery just fine. All right, we listen to all of these that come in. Thank you all for sharing them. Uh, you can send me your best thing of your week, any week, at any time. Just send a file to me at samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. It's time to say goodbye to you all. I had a great time. We're going to take us out on that World Cup song, Positivo, because that's how I'm feeling after hanging out with you guys for a bit. More Vuvuzelas. Yes. Do the sound again. There's no vibrato on it. <laughs> when thousands and thousands of vuvuzelas are going at once, that's that's the feeling it creates. I love it. Listeners, actually send us in your best vuvuzela impersonations or sounds. Sam, uh, what are you doing? I want to I want to make the production team suffer. And listeners, in 2026, when you're at the World Cup, bring a vuvuzela. Do it. This week, the show was produced by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry with help from Kumari Devarajan. Steve Nelson is our director of programming. We have additional editing help by Jeff Rogers. And our big boss is NPR's VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Many thanks to our guest, Linda Holmes, host of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thanks for doing this, Linda. Miss you, Sam. Miss you, too. I'm going to come visit very soon. And Scott Detrow, busy, busy man, hosting the NPR Politics Podcast. Thank you for your time as well. Thanks a lot. Listeners, refresh your feeds Tuesday morning for a truly, truly fun chat I had recently with Niecy Nash. You know her well. She was in Arena 911. She was in HBO's Getting On. She has a new TNT series out right now called Claws, and it's phenomenal. Some folks are calling it Steel Magnolias meets Breaking Bad. We talk about that show, her career, and we laugh pretty much the whole time. Check for that episode on Tuesday. All right, listeners, until then, thanks for listening. Talk soon. Positivo, así es como es, aunque no sea fácil lo sé. Positivo, por más difícil que se vea, siempre positivo. Y me activo.